Hello everyone, welcome back to JarCast. I'm your host, William, and I'm here with my co-host, Lulu Slacia, and today we're interviewing Mr. Hawkins. Mr. Hawkins, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just start off. Mr. Hawkins, you teach here at ACA, you teach Latin, and the new class that's in elective this year, Other Voices, is that, do you teach anything else? Am I missing anything? I also teach uh, uh, political philosophy and American government. Okay. I, I knew that. I don't know. I just seem to have forgotten. So what do you enjoy about teaching at ACA? Uh, the thing I've really enjoyed, especially in teaching Latin, is that I have found that not only have I been able to teach students a lot of things, I find that I'm growing myself. Uh, one thing I would never want to find myself, one position I'd never want to find myself in, is a position where every year I'm just doing the same darn thing and <laughs> Uh, I'm not growing and I'm simply going through the motions and reviewing the notes from the previous year. ACA has been great for me because not only has it allowed me to teach various levels of Latin and, and improve my own Latin considerably, but it's allowed us to be, have some flexibility with different textbooks, which has also meant that I can uh, look at the language from a different perspective and it's given me the opportunity to teach a bunch of additional classes. I mean, even though I was hired as a Latin teacher, I've taught uh, economics, I've taught American history, I've taught American government, I've taught political philosophy, I've taught this class Other Voices, there may be other electives that I teach next year, and so every year is different for me. Another thing I've really liked, and this one, this, this one goes out to the seniors, uh, I started teaching the senior class when they were in seventh grade, not everyone, but a large portion of the senior, of the senior class I started teaching in seventh grade and I was able to continue teaching those same students year after year after year which makes it to me uh, a cooler experience than if you have a class in ninth grade and you never see them again yeah. because I saw that whole class uh, develop from you know just basically being little kids to being grown-ups and I feel almost a sense of parental um, responsibility and parental affection towards that class just because of those circumstances and I hope to be able to repeat a similar experience with another grade some other time. Yeah, very cool. So you were a practicing lawyer before you started teaching ACA. That's right. How <coughs> does that affect your teaching and do you think you bring anything from your law? Uh, one thing is that uh, to be a lawyer requires a very analytical mind and it's also helpful to be able to have some verbal acuity so that you can speak clearly without a lot of preparation. Uh, both of those skills are necessary when you're teaching a class. Um, as far as Latin goes, a lot of people think that being a lawyer must be great for your Latin. If any of you folks out there who are taking Latin because you think it might make you a better lawyer, let me disabuse you of that notion. In fact, the, the number of legal terms that derive from Latin is pretty limited, maybe 15 or 20, and they have their own specific meanings in the context of law, which are different from the meanings that might be ascribed to them by Cicero or something like that. So learning Latin for the purpose of giving you a, a, an edge in law is not really the, an efficient way of doing things. 
However, the benefit that Latin brings to law is that it requires you to understand texts precisely. You have to analyze the sentence and know exactly how what, what this fits in with this, it fits in with this, that, so that it creates a sentence that is uh, logically coherent and structurally sound. And if you, are, if you are able to understand language in a very precise way, that's extremely valuable, both because it enables you to draft contracts and other legal documents in a precise way, and also because it enables you to clearly understand the meaning all the way down to the very nitty-gritty. And when you're practicing law, it's that nitty-gritty that you're always arguing about. Simply knowing the gist of a document is of no value at all. You have to know it precisely. And the practice of, uh, practice of law can be very much enhanced by the discipline that uh, you experience studying Latin in a detailed way. So, so there, is, there are some connections. There are some connections. So you mentioned you teach um, the other voices classes. Why did you want to start that class and how have you enjoyed it so far? Um, other voices was inspired by <clears throat> my recognition that Atlanta Classical is a Western-oriented school for which I think we make no apologies and I think it's absolutely appropriate. I think that's the tradition in which we we live and I think that's the tradition that we need to understand the most. But the Western tradition is only a part of the larger world. Uh, I've lived in a lot of different countries over the years and I have learned from that experience that uh, people in different countries and different cultures view the same set of facts differently. And uh, one of the things that education should do is broaden a student's viewpoint. And other voices was just a small step in that direction. So, for example, we uh, watched several movies that uh, from Japan, because that's the culture which I'm most familiar with outside the West, and we read a, a, a book from Japan, we read a book that came from um, Iran and another from Africa. We're now reading a book uh, written by a South American writer. And my hope is that in uh, stepping into the shoes of the characters in these different cultures, students can gain a broader understanding of what's out there in the world. Oh, that's very cool. Kind of making me wish I took that class now. The other great thing about it is there's no homework. <laughs> <laughs> we do most of the reading in class because I know that for electives, I think of this almost like a book club. If you're in a book club and you just go, you go and you read, and then we just talk about it some. So, for this, I'll, I'll put a pitch in for it for next year. If I if I do teach it next year, I'm not sure what electives I'll have next year. But if I do teach it next year, uh, I think it's a, a valuable class, and it won't uh, tax anyone's schedules too much because I know that seniors uh, a have a lot to do in the fall, and b in the spring may be disinclined to put in the kind of homework they put in their earlier years yeah. in high school. Yeah. So uh, for spring break, you went to Egypt. Is that I correct? did. Yeah. How, tell us about that. Egypt was cool. Um, was your first time in Egypt? It it was. Um, the thing that's so striking about Egypt, that's that, is unmistakable, is the historical depth. Um, so, for example, this this really amazed me we saw the pyramids, the mm. famous Cheops pyramids, which is the only surviving 
wonder from the ancient world. You know, there were seven wonders of the world. One of them was the Cheops Pyramid. All the others have since been destroyed or lost or whatever, but that survives. Well, think about this. If you go back in time, and you go back all the way back to the time of Cleopatra, are you with me? Mm -hmm. And you want to then go back all the way to the, when the Cheops Pyramid was built, when you reach Cleopatra, you are not halfway there yet. Whoa. So the distance in time between Cleopatra and Cheops is greater than the distance in time between Cleopatra and us. Whoa. That's how old wow. these things were. Yeah, and so when the, you know, from, from an Egyptian perspective, when you talk about Egypt dur during the time of the Roman Empire, which is when Cleopatra, mm. of course, was reigning, that's like, pfft, last week, give me something, you know, a little bit more historical depth. Cleopatra is like so newfangled. Um, and to see the uh, pyramids was so extraordinary because it forces you to contemplate how in the world this, these yeah. structures were made. It, you know, these stones, they had to be very, very high quality stones. There were only certain quarries from which you could get these stones because they've got to last, well, so far, 5,000 years. But they were supposed to last, <coughs> obviously, nothing lasts eternally, but it was supposed to last for thousands of years, right? So you had to go to specific quarries to gather these stones, and they had to cut these out into precise, precise shapes. And each one of these stones weighed about 15 tons. So let's call that 30,000 pounds, give or take. I don't know if it's exactly 15 tons. And uh, they had to transport them, you know, tens of miles, and they did not have the wheel the wheel had not yet been invented in Egypt, and you can imagine what that entails. Yeah. There were hundreds of thousands of workers working on this for years and years and years. They were so expensive to do because, of course, someone had to grow the food to feed these hundreds of thousands of workers and that sort of thing. They were so expensive to do that after the third one, the Egyptian economy was in complete collapse, and they could not continue anymore. So. Some people think that all the pharaohs were buried in, in uh, pyramids. That's not true at all. There were only three. There was Cheops, his son, and his grandson. And no other uh, pyramids were ever made after that because they could not sustain it economically. The other reason they didn't want to do it is because of the danger of grave robbers. You know that mm. they were used as tombs yeah. for the pharaohs. And I know in, in addition to the pharaoh's uh, embalmed body, there were also all kinds of valuable possessions of the pharaohs that were buried along with them. Well, a, a pyramid is like a big neon sign saying, rob me. <laughs> you can see it from miles away. After the third pyramid, uh, the Egyptians uh, started using a, a, a area of the country known as the Valley of the Kings. You may have heard of the Valley of the Kings. Yes, and uh, that's where all subsequent pharaohs, pharaohs were buried. And they were done very, very secretively. So secretly, in fact, that even now, uh, new uh, pharaoh's tombs are being discovered. Whoa. So uh, they're hidden so expertly that even now they're being discovered. And when they're discovered now, they find you, they find that at least the the remnants that were buried along with the pharaohs are more likely to be found intact because they were hidden not only from current archaeologists, of course, but from the potential grave robbers of five thousand years ago. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've um, been to a lot of different countries. Is, do you have a particularly favorite country or, I don't know, one that jumps to mind that you really enjoyed? 
Well, um, I have traveled to a lot of countries, but I've only lived in a handful. I've lived in England, I've lived in Singapore, and I've lived in Japan. And there's a substantial difference between visiting a country, even if it's for a month or so, and living there. Uh, to really understand a country, I, I think it's imperative that you work in that country, that, or if you're a student, go to school in that country, that you have a home in that country, that you live four seasons, that you experience an entire year, that you uh, make friends in that, in that country. That's the, really the, the only way to learn about a culture in anything but a superficial manner. And of, of those three places, uh, Japan is overwhelmingly the, the country that I uh, have the greatest affection for. I mean, my wife is from Japan, so that's, that, that's a, a, a very strong emotional tie. And I spent lots and lots of time studying the Japanese language, and I lived there the longest. I lived there for 10 years. So um, uh, Japan is very much a part of me, I think, in some ways, by living in Japan as long as I did and spending and devoting as much time as I did to learning their language and culture, it increased me almost from one person to two people. I feel almost as if I, I lived two lives as a result of it. My, my way of thinking doubled. Now that's probably uh, overstating the, the, the matter, but nonetheless I feel like it expanded me in a way that I could not have grown in any other way. So I have a very strong affection for Japan. Yeah, well. So, when did you decide to go over to Japan? Like, why did you decide? Hey, I'm, did you did you think that you were going to live there for ten years when you went? No, visit? no. The first time I went to Japan, I just graduated from college, and I had studied English as a my major, <coughs> and uh, I had two job offers. Uh, I wanted something short term because I was planning to go to law school in a little while. I don't want to take a year or two off. And one was to teach at a private school in Washington, D.C., and the other was to teach in Japan. Mm. And I remember I was on a car ride with my dad, and sometimes I find that the best advice you ever get from your parents is given on a long car ride where you have nowhere else to go. <laughs> and of course, those are the days before people spent their car rides on the phone. Anyway, uh, I was asking his advice on which of these two positions I should take, and he said, Son, in either case, you're going to be teaching, but you are young, and the most important thing for you to do at this stage in your life is not to teach, but to learn. So you should make your decision on those two positions based upon in which position you are likely to learn more. And it seemed to me that I would learn a lot more by going to Japan than I would learn from teaching, uh, teaching uh, English in a high school in D.C. I only went there for a year and then went back to graduate school in Japanese and I didn't find myself back into Japan long term until after I'd been practicing law for a couple of years. That second time when I went there, I, again, I didn't know I was going to be there for 10 years, but I found that since I, by this time my, my Japanese was good enough to practice law in the language, uh, that gave me a niche. They're not, there's not a huge demand for bilingual lawyers who speak who um, know Japanese and American law. There's not a huge demand for them, but even though the demand is small, the supply is much smaller. Mm -hmm. There are only a handful of people who can do that. Yeah. And so as a result, it gave me lots of professional opportunities, and so I ended up staying for 10 years and really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's really cool.
So what kind of differences did you see in American law versus law in Asia? Well, there's really no such thing as thinking about law in Asia. Okay. Asia is such a diverse place. Europe, Europe is if Europe is, is is itself kind of one civilization, and if you leave if you leave out the United Kingdom and you just take the EU, they have very much almost an integrated legal system. It all derives from the Napoleonic or the Napoleonic Code or from the um, or from the uh, German Code, that, and, and it all sources back from Roman law. And the law legal system is very very similar across the board. In Asia, there's lots and lots of diversity. So, for example. Uh, you may not know this, but the largest Muslim country in the world is not Saudi Arabia or Iran or Iraq or something like that. It's Indonesia, and Indonesia, being a being a, a Muslim country, is going to have a very different, a very different a legal system than, say, oh, I don't know, Thailand, which is a Buddhist-based system, or you know, if you want to count Australia as your Asian, that's a something. You know, question whether that fits in the definition of Asia, but Australia comes from an, an English tradition, or um, Singapore, which was colonized by the English, has its own legal system based upon that. The I can speak, though, about the Japanese legal system, and it's a fascinating story, because the Japanese legal system was essentially a Confucian-based system. They derived all their uh, legal precepts and, and philosophy and laws themselves from China and the Chinese system was very much a hierarchical system in which uh, great deference was owed by inferior people to superior people and the idea of bringing a lawsuit was entirely anathema to, to uh, the Confucian way of looking at things because it was the obligation of the superior to have a to show benevolence towards his underling and it was it was obligatory for the underling to show reverence to the superior and the idea of conflict between the two of those was really considered um, uh, a terrible breach of, of piety. So <clears throat> that was the system that existed up until about 1850 but in 1854 when Commodore Perry from the United States opened up Japan to the West Forcibly, that is, because Japan had maintained uh, uh, isolation for the preceding couple hundred years. When he did that, and a variety of other countries, including the United States, started entering into treaties of trade and friendship with uh, Japan, uh, these foreign countries imposed a rule that the Japanese hated, and the rule was any foreigner who has been accused of committing a crime in Japan will not be tried in Japan by Japanese courts because we don't trust your legal system. Mm -hmm. Instead, we will try our own people in our courts in the, at, the, at, the, at the embassy and we will decide whether he has committed a crime against you. Not only, not only was that likely going to lead to unfair adjudication, but also was considered very, very humiliating to the Japanese because it was a statement that you are a barbarous country and we don't trust you in that way. So the Japanese uh, went on this great modernization effort in lots of ways, and one of the ways was a modernized legal code. And they scoured the world, and they sent these embassies to all, of the all these various places in the world to try to find out what was the most sophisticated and best legal system that they could import. Ultimately, they decided on the German code, um, and they adapted it to Japanese to Japanese ways. But they largely they largely took in the German the Germans. Uh, Civil civil law system, 
which ultimately, interestingly, derives from Roman law, which is another topic that I'm very interested in. So anyway, you had this 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 European-based code, excuse me, specifically a German-based code, and uh, one of the problems with the German-based code was uh, Germany itself was very much a top-down society, and maybe that's one reason it 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 fit in mm -hmm. well with a society that based upon Confucianism. Yeah. Well, after World War II, the American occupiers said, you know what? One of the reasons that one of the reasons that Japan uh, sank into um, tyranny and militarism was the legal system. And they, the American uh, occupiers rewrote the Constitution. The original Constitution was, was presented as a gift from the Emperor to the people. The new Constitution was a, a, a established that sovereignty resided in the people. And this was not a gift from the emperor. It wasn't the, the sovereignty was not a gift that any individual could have, but that the emperor instead was simply a, a figurehead, a symbol of the Japanese of Japanese unity. So, they 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 modernized the um, constitution to make it a more democratic system, and they also gave greater rights to criminal defendants. They made it uh, possible for uh, equality of the sexes. There were all kinds of ways in which the the Japanese law was influenced by American principles. So it's a very very interesting mix of Roman-based law through the German code and American constitutional law, all put into the context of a society that is deeply 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 Confucian, which derives from China. So as you can see, it is not a simple. It is not a, yeah. <coughs> a, a, a a simple matter to understand all the complexities and, and the permutations by which those various influences can play out. Well, should, so were you practicing a lot in Japan, or was it kind of? I mean, like were you like I don't even know how law practice really works. Do you go in every day and get? A, you mean was? Yeah, I mean I, I. Some people think of of when you think of a lawyer, you might think of Atticus Finch, right? Yeah, you know, someone Saul, gets up in court. Goodman. What? I think it's Saul Goodman. Saul Goodman from yeah. um, <laughs> uh, from the story, uh, uh, Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, right? Yeah, I hope I'm not a Saul Goodman character, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm sorry to say I'm not an Atticus Finch character either, because I was not a trial lawyer, oh, yeah. so I never conducted trials at all. The sort of stuff that I did was more representing companies who were trying to, let's say a Japanese company that might be trying to invest in the United States. Mm. So, um, oh, okay. the very, the, the, the uh, advising them on things like the securities laws of the United States, how they need, you know, what are the antitrust, what are the antitrust implications of, of, of their business in the United States. Or sometimes there were United States companies that were trying to buy Jap Japanese um, companies. And so that's called, those are called mergers and acquisitions. So I did a bunch of bad stuff. That's when I was working at, a, at an external law firm. After doing that for a couple of years, I was hired by American Express to be their um, main lawyer in Japan. And so when I was at American Express, uh, I had two main roles. One was to make sure that um, the deals that we did and the, and the business that we conducted was in, were in compliance with the, with the law and making sure that you know we had uh, uh, valid contracts with our, our suppliers and to make sure that, for example, the terms and conditions of 
of the of the American Express card was in conformity with with law, and to make sure that our legal our labor practices were in conformity with Japanese law, that sort of stuff. And uh, the other thing was to sort of serve as a bridge between uh, the folks in New York and and the folks in Japan. The Japan and America are such different countries. They're so divided by by differences of cultural assumption and by language because not only do very few Americans speak Japanese a surprisingly small number of Japanese speak English or at least speak it well so that the number of people who can really live comfortably in both worlds and can explain each world to the other is very small and that was one of the things that I found was essential to the job it's not really on the official you know, job description yeah. but it's something that was really important I think I hope I hope I added some value in doing that yeah. well mr. Hawkins this has been um, super interesting thank you for joining us my pleasure um, William and I, I think next episode will be our last episode uh -huh. um, yeah. before we go mr. Hawkins do you have any clothing clothing thought, thoughts remarks remarks <coughs> well since this is getting towards the end of the year and I hope there's some seniors listening uh, I just want to tell you what a pleasure it's been teaching you guys and how uh, sorry I will be to see you all leave. I wish you all the best in your college careers and beyond. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hawkins. Thank you, Mr. Hawkins. So we will release this episode next Monday, which you do not know when next Monday is. <laughs> but after that, we uh, will release every other Monday until our last episode. So thank you guys so much for listening and see you guys Monday. <laughs>